0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Pratt of Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 2 Peter chapter three, verses one through thirteen, in which Peter discusses the day of the Lord. Now, this is a highly controversial section; has a lot of eschatology in it, so it's going to be a little bit difficult. A little bit difficult. Our context is in the last chapter, the whole chapter, 2 Peter two. Peter talked about false prophets and teachers and he switches to the day of the Lord here. I really don't see how the context has much to do with the day of the Lord. So we're sort of starting a new topic. We'll start with verse one, Second Peter 3. Dear friends, this, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to develop a genuine understanding with a reminder. This is the second letter. What are some options as to what the first letter was? First Peter immediately comes to mind. have you Study Bible mentions that, but doesn't affirm it. In fact, says that there's some reasons to doubt that 1 Peter is the previous letter because 1 Peter cannot accurately be described as a reminder. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't really examined that because it doesn't really matter to me. So 1 Peter may or may not be the first letter that he's talking about here. But the main point is, is that he's written them twice to remind them twice. He's reemphasizing his point that he made in the earlier letter. And this, is, this exhibits the truth that Christians who know the truth always need to be reminded. You and me both. It's just hard to keep it all in our tiny little brains. 2 Peter 3, 2. It's the middle of a sentence, so let me go back to verse 1. I want to develop a genuine understanding with... I have written to you... Let's, let's do it this way. Verse 1. I have written to you... Dot, dot, dot Verse 2. So that you could remember the words previously, previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Now, prophets... Those are the ones who wrote the Old Testament. And apostles, those are the ones who wrote the New Testament. So Peter here, as the Navy Study Bible points out, Peter places the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles on the same plane. And we would say it's like this. Remember the words given to you in the Bible. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. So Peter is saying, remember the words spoken by the prophets in the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament canon. Then, had the command of the Lord and Savior given through your apostles. They had some of the New Testament letters were passed around, I'm sure. Now, Peter has a high view of the holy prophets and a high view of the apostles. He says the commands of Jesus came through those apostles. That's how we get them. And it's amazing to me to see how many people today denigrate the words of the apostles. These apostles were sent by Jesus just like the Old Testament prophets were sent by God. A word from an apostle is a word from Jesus. John 13:20. Jesus says, I assure you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. In fact, the definition of apostle is sent one. Now notice that what Jesus sent through those apostles were a, were commands. He said, Peter says, I want you to remember the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior. He wants to remember the command that Jesus has given through the apostles. A command, folks, is not a suggestion. What command is being referred to? John Gill says it's the gospel in general, because Jesus commanded the apostles to preach the gospel, and so that's the command, the command to spread the gospel. The Great Commission, remember the go- Remember that command because from that command sprung the gospel. So remember the gospel, basically. John Gill suggests another command that Jesus is talking about that Peter wants his readers to remember, to love one another. John 13:34. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. John Gill has another option as to what command Peter is referring to the instructions, the directions, and the predictions concerning the day of the Lord, which he's going to talk about, which Peter is going to talk about here in a few verses. And we'll look at that when we get there. We read in Jude one seventeen and 18, the parallel book to Second Peter. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers walking according to their own ungodly desires. So that was a command that the apostles had given, look out for the scoffers, and Peter's going to talk about scoffers here. So, I don't know what Peter was specifically referring to, but we can just say whatever command that Jesus gave through the apostles, there were lots of them, we're supposed to obey them, we're supposed to remember them, and remember means just don't remember them in our heads, it means to remember them in order to do them. We go to verse three, Second Peter 3. First, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, living according to their own desires. There are other scriptures that say the same thing about scoffers in the last days. Jude 1.18, at the end time there will be scoffers. In the end time, that's the last days, there will be scoffers. Walking according to their own ungodly desires. First Timothy 4, one. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, last days, Some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. 1 John 2.18 Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. So the idea of last days is connected with scoffing, Antichrist, deceitful spirits, teaching of demons, bad stuff. But now we... Approach the $60,000 question, what is last days? Well, if there are some options as to what last days means. I'm going to give you five. It could mean the end of the Jewish state. James Jameson Fawcett and Brown says the very fact that there were scoffers at that at the time Peter was writing helps confirm this, because Peter was writing in the 60s, which was right before the end of the Jewish state, which, her, which occurred in seventy when the Romans burnt the city down. Adam Clark says this, The last days probably refer to the conclusion of the Jewish polity, which was then at hand. Well, that's what I think it means, so I'll just leave it there. Some people say the last days is the end of the gospel age, the age of the church, 2,000 plus years from the time that John wrote. Why would Peter be telling his readers to be aware of scoffers that are going to be coming 2,000 years later? Even though he was talking to his readers who were enduring the scoffers at the time they lived. So I don't believe it can be the end of the gospel age and the end of the church. Some people say it's even further than that, the end of the world. The end of the world, to me, is the end of the gospel age. Some people said it's the last hour of the apostolic age, not the last hour of the Jewish state, but the last hour of the apostolic age. Well, the problem with that is, Peter was writing in the 60s. John lived long after the 60s. So the end of the apostolic age was not there. The NIV Study Bible says the last days is the whole period between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Here are some scriptures the NIV Study Bible uses to try to prove this. Acts 2.17. This is the, at, the, at Pentecost when Peter was quoting Joel's sermon, Joel's prophecy. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Well, to me, Joel was talking about the last days being at the end of the Jewish age because the new age was just getting ready to start with Pentecost. But the NIV study Bibles carries it on further from Pentecost and carries it all the way out through the church age until the end. Well, if that's true, then that means there are going to be dreams and visions all the way to the end. What does that do to cessationism? Well, okay, I'm not a cessationist, so that's not going to bother me too much to to carry it to the end. But I must say, what was Peter referring to when he was quoting Joel? He was not quoting the, the old church age. He was referring to the end of Jerusalem when he spoke. He was referring to Pentecost. He's, he looks around, everybody's speaking in tongues, walking around as if drunk and all that. And then he says, in the last days, he's, he's pointing to events at Pentecost, and he refers that to the last days. So we're going to take it that the last days means the end of the Jewish state. There are other verses. Well, let me give you some more verses suggested by the NIV Study Bible to prove that last days means all the way through the church age. 2 Timothy 3.1. But know this, difficult times will come in the last days. What cannot be the last days of the Jewish age? Why does it have to be the whole church? Was Paul warning Timothy personally, or was he warning the whole church during the church age? He was writing to Timothy, telling him to look out. This is what you're going to face here before the Jews go down, and we get free from their persecution. Hebrews 1, 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And I've studied Bible says that's all the way through to the end of, to the second coming of Jesus. But it says, in these last days, God has appointed him heir of all things. Jesus had already come in these last days, the last days he was talking about at the time he was writing. And when did the author of Hebrews write? In the eighty sixties, 60s, right before the end of the Jewish age. Now I'm not saying the NIV study Bible is logically impossibly wrong when they say that, but what's most likely? First Peter one twenty, he was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the times for you was revealed at the end of the times. That's talking about in the past when they found out about Jesus, when they realized that the Jewish age was over and the new covenant had begun. All right, so we're going to assume by the preponderance of the evidence and by the most logical interpretation of this, that these scoffers that came in the last days, they came in the last days before the destruction of Jerusalem in 870—and 70 and that, and that time frame is going to govern my interpretation of the whole rest of this chapter. We go to Second Peter 3, verse 4, saying, I guess I need to go back because I'm in the middle of a verse here. Be aware of this, scoffers will come in the last days, dot, 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 saying, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. Where is his coming? Now, of course, we've got to talk about what coming is. Well, let's just talk about it now. There's two options, coming to judge Jerusalem in eighty seventy, That's the correct option. The other option is the second coming. Now, where is the promise of his coming? Whatever view you take of his coming, the scoffers can be seen to exhibit a normalcy bias. They assume everything will continue as before. Everything's normal. Just like in America, we thought everything was normal until COVID-19 hit. We thought everything was normal until 9-11 hit. When the next judgment of God hits this God-forsaken country, it ought be interesting. Things are not normal because God can always judge at any time. Just like he judged those Jews in Jerusalem. They were going about their business. Next thing you know, the Jewish war sprung up suddenly. Surprisingly, right in the middle of the Pax Romana. And the next thing they knew, their city was Kaputsky. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, well, who were the fathers? The NIV Study Bible says it's the Old Testament patriarchs, and I believe that's the correct answer. Some people say, well, then NIV Study Bible suggests it could be the first Christians to die after Christ's death and resurrection. I don't know. When you hear a Jew talk about the fathers, who's he talking about? He's talking about the patriarchs, the Old Testament patriarchs. He's not talking about Stephen or James, the brother of John those early Christian martyrs. All right, so ever since the fathers fell asleep, ever since those old Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob and Joseph all died, which was, what, a couple thousand years before then? Well, a couple millennium or so before then, a millennium plus B.C., everything's going along. So why do, you think, why do you think Jerusalem's going to go down in eighty seventy very shortly? Why do you think that? You notice the scoffers are pointing to two long periods of time. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, that was mid-2nd century, Second millennium B.C., that's a long time, 1,500 years. But how about this? Things continue ever the way they've been ever since the beginning of creation. And who knows how long ago that was, but that was a long time ago. Everything's the same. All things continue. That means all things in the natural world because that's what we look around and see. And that's basically as far as scoffers ever look because they're usually materialist. We go now to Second Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. They willfully ignore this. Long ago, the heavens and the earth were brought about from water... And through water, by the word of God, through these, water, through these waters, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. And so what Peter is doing is bringing up a bunch of other people who lived with a normalcy bias. They thought that the world was going to go on and on. And the next thing, whoa, where'd all this water come from? Busting out of the fountains of the deep and pouring out of the clouds of the sky. And the next thing you know, they were drowned. They were dead. Peter's pointing out the suddenness of judgment that can come when people are least expecting it. Now notice in verse 5, these people are said to willfully ignore this, these scoffers in Noah's time, willfully ignored. Well, excuse me, that's not what the scoffers in Peter's time are willfully ignoring what happened back in Noah's time. They needed to look at Noah as an object lesson, and they're willfully ignoring it. They're on purpose, not opening their eyes to see that that judgment happened to an unrighteous people very suddenly, and it's going to happen to Peter's contemporaries, unbelieving contemporaries also. They they, they did it not Through ignorance, they willfully ignored the examples of God's judgment in the past. And they also willfully ignore the fallacies of their own argument. They say that everything past has been the same all the way from creation until the time of Peter in the 80s, 60s. Well, that's not even true. Exactly how did everything continue as normal through Noah's flood? They knew about Noah's flood, and yet they say, well, everything's just like it was from creation. No, it was not. Now, there's an interesting, a difficult phrase here. Long ago, the heavens and the earth were brought about from water and through water by the word of God. That's talking about the creation story in Genesis 1, 6 through 10. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. And I suppose that's what Peter means when he says the earth was brought about from water. In other words, the land poked itself up from the water, from the deep, from the water that was covering the land and through water, and the land went through the water. That's the easiest way to look at it to me. However, that's not the only way you can look at it. The King James has it, the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So long ago, the earth was standing out of the water as, it, as the land came up through the water, and it was in the water instead of through the water. I know those prepositions are hard to translate. If, I, I assume they're just as hard to translate in Hebrew as they are in Greek or English. Adam Clark says this is an extremely difficult clause. There's another way you can look at it. From Long ago, the heavens and the earth were brought about from water. The earth, the water on earth was separated from the water in the sky, the firmament that was in the sky. And so the waters on the earth were separated from water or brought about from water. And then when it says the earth was brought about through water, it could mean that the water that was now separated from the firmament and on the earth was now used in forming the landforms as the water rushed around and carved things out. Well, so you can say who knows what that means exactly, but the point is is that there was a lot of water at creation. (laughs) A lot of water. And that water that was created in verse 6 destroyed the world. Through these waters the world of that time perished when it was flooded. That either means the physical world or the people living on the planet at the time could mean either one, because it was actually both. They both got destroyed. We go now to verse 7 2 Peter 3. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth were stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. By the same word, what does that mean? The word of God. Verse 6, we see the heavens and the earth were brought about from water and through water by the word of God. And that was when God said, let there be, let there be an expanse. And so by that same word, the same word of God, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire. So what Peter is saying, by the same God that spoke that let let there be water on the earth at the creation, that same God is saying the present heavens and earth are stored up to be burned up by fire. Now what that means is, of course, a $60,000 question, which we'll look at in just a minute. But the heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And I'm going to just give you a preview here. I believe that it's talking about the day of judgment. It's talking about the day of judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70 when the ungodly Jews who were running the Jewish polity, the apostole, apostate Jewish kingdom, when they were destroyed and burned up by the Romans in August 70 AD. And the, and the present heavens and earth, the heavens and earth refers to the Jewish kingdom, which was a, a rabbinic term for the Jewish heavens, heavens and earth is a, a rabbinic term used to, to describe the Jewish nation. We now turn to Second Peter chapter 3 verse 8. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Now this is the futurist favorite verse. You hear this quoted in defense against all the other evidence that Jesus and the apostles were talking about AD 70 when they talked about judgment coming and the day of the Lord coming, the day of the Lord is near and all that. They say, no, 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 no. It's referring to the end of the world, end of the world. And then when you say, well, what part of soon do you not understand? It's coming soon. It's near. Oh, but with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. So it might be it, uh, when God tells us that it's coming soon, he means it could be a thousand years. Because soon is stretched with the Lord. Well, but the problem with that thinking is, is that little prepositional phrase with the Lord. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, but not with us. If I told you I'm going to come visit you soon and I take a thousand years to get there, you are going to think I lied to you. And and God is talking to human beings and He says, I'm come My day of judgment is near. The day of the Lord is near. And then when I've got when the person being spoken to has got to wait a thousand years or 2000 years he's going to feel like god lied to him so let's don't use this verse in inappropriately the verse is from god's point of view the day of ju- the delay of judgment doesn't seem so long to him the delay was from 8030 when the jews killed jesus when they got their punishment was 87 so god took 40 years before he destroyed them before he punished them for the before the murder of jesus and what Peter is saying here is, well, you know, he's taken a long time to wreak his, to, to wreck his judgment upon the Jews who killed Jesus. He's sure taking a long time. He's not going to punish us. We didn't, you know, it's no big deal killing Jesus. He was just a criminal. And Peter's saying, well, now wait a minute. God, with, in God's point of view, he doesn't have time. One day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day is just another word of saying, way of saying If he waits 40 years, human times, to him, is a blink of an eye. To him, he sees the crime, he's going to do the punishment. Because to him, he's not worried about earthly time frames. But now that's with God. But with us, one day is not like a thousand years. Let's say you wait, your parents tell you you've got to wait a thousand years before Christmas gets here. You going to think it's going to get here tomorrow? Of course not. We don't think that way. God might think that way, but we don't. So, there are many, many time indicators of judgment that say the judgment is near and soon. These words, these verses were written from man's point of view, not God's. From man's point of view, the judgment was indeed near. Again, 30 to 40 years is pretty near. If not, God would be using meaningless language, which can have no effect but to confuse his children. Now, let's look at some of these time indicators about the day of the Lord coming soon. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. Revelation 1.3, the one who reads this is blessed. is blessed, And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed, because the time is near. Near, N-E-A-R. James 5.8, you also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near, N-E-A-R. That's not 2,000 plus years. His coming to judge Jerusalem is near. Hebrews 10, 37, for yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. So there the coming is very near. To God, whether it comes in 40 years or 2,000 years doesn't make any difference because God's outside of time. But to us, it's near. God uses time indicators to indicate to us on our human time frame, on our human schedules, our human clocks, it's coming soon on a human clock. About forty years, not two thousand plus years. Peter, when he says a year is like a thousand, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day, Peter's probably alluding to Psalm ninety, verse four, according to Gill and Clark. For in your sight, a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours in the night. Again, in your sight, in God's sight, from God's point of view, not our point of view. So maybe Peter's talking about a common saying of the Jews. Peter says, dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. In other words, like it escaped the scoffers, they didn't understand that. They're scoffing. They're talking about the delay. Why is God coming so long to delay us? You say that he's coming to judge Jerusalem, as in Olivet Discourse. You said it's coming soon, as in Revelation. Well, 35 years have gone by. Nothing's happened. <laughs> and Peter's saying, hey, God's not in a hurry. It might be a long time for you it might be a delay for you, but with God, it's, not a, it's like a second has gone by because he's not subject to time like we are. When Peter says, Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. He's trying to emphasize this important thing about the time, about the delay. Where is where's this judgment that Jesus was talking about on the Olivet Discourse and what you Christians keep talking about? Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but... All to come to repentance. Now, what he's saying is, is that this delay, the fact that Jesus had not come to tear the temple down, one stone not standing upon one another, which Jesus said would come before that generation that he was speaking to passed away. Well, that hadn't happened yet, but his promise, his promise to come judge the uh, nation in eighty-seven, as as John Gill. refers that promise to, the Lord does not delay his promise. It's not delayed, Hebrews 10, 37, for yet in a very little while the coming one will come and not delay. In a very little while. Hebrews was written in the 60s A.D. God is not delaying, as some understand delay. In other words, God's not delaying it, but these scoffers who were saying, where is where is Jesus' coming that was promised in the Olivet Discourse, in which you Christians keep talking about, where is it? Peter's saying, "Uh uh-uh, he didn't delay it. The reason he hasn't come yet, because he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but to all come to repentance. In other words, if he'd have just snuffed out Israel right at the time of the crucifixion, nobody would have had time to repent. But he's given 40 years, one generation, for all you wicked Jews who killed Jesus to come to your senses and repent of your sins so that he can save you. Now, Peter says in verse 9, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand Delay. Here's how the scoffers were wrong, NIV Study Bible puts it. They were wrong on two points, that all had continued the same since creation. Nope, not so. Remember Noah? And they were wrong on the second point, that the current delay in judgment meant he wasn't going to judge them. Oh, yes, he will. God is a long-suffering God. He wants to give people an opportunity to, to repent. Now, some people, of course, say that the Lord does not delay his promise, but, it, but it's the judgment. Is coming uh, 2,000 plus years later at the end of time. He's patient with you. He's going to give you 2,000 plus years to come to repentance. I find that real hard to believe. A lot of futurists do believe that. And then, of course, when you point out that um, that's a pretty long delay, and then they say, But a year with the Lord is a thousand, a day with the Lord is is, is as a thousand years. And to which I respond, Yes. But that's in his eyes, not our eyes. Hebrews says, For yet a very little while the coming one will come. James says, the Lord is standing near, right at the door. John says in Revelation, he's coming soon, a morning or night or noon. And that, from our eyes, means he's coming soon, which was 8070. The reason the scoffers were starting to scoff, as John Gill points out, is that about 30 years had passed since the Olivet Discourse when Jesus said he was coming. And so people were starting to scoff. Now, let me make one more mention of what futurists do. They often scoff at that 40-year wait, and they say, oh, that's a delay, 40 years? Well, look. As that's not a delay, that's a drop in the bucket. All right, let's say that I've got a judgment for you. You want a, a big judgment, Mr. Futurist, and I'm going to pay out. Or well, let's say you won the lottery. I got a million dollars, but I'm not going to pay you for 40 years. Really? 40 years is not a long delay? Come on. In anybody's lifetime, 40 years is an extremely long time to wait for anything. So I don't know what they're scoffing about. Chapter 3, verse 10, 2 Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Now, here's the famous day of the Lord. There are similar expressions in the scripture. The day of God, the day of wrath, the day of vengeance, the judgment day. They're all referring, it's all the same thing. Now, you know, if I were a dispensationalist, I might be tempted to say, well, there's five different days because there's five different terms. Dispensationalists are so great at that. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Oh, it's two different kingdoms. No. It's two different words for the same thing. These are five different expressions for the same thing. The day of judgment. Now, it's not a day of, it's not, excuse me, it's not the day of judgment. Because in general, when you see those expressions, day of the Lord, day of wrath, and so forth, it refers to. it could refer to more than one day, not just the final day of judgment, but to other days of judgment. And I'll show you that as we go through some scriptures the idea of the day of the Lord always has the idea of judgment for sinners and salvation for the righteous. It's usually associated with clouds, a day of judgment. Now the final judgment day is associated with the resurrection of the body. And that's how you distinguish the final judgment day from just other days of judgment in Old Testament salvation and salvation history. The way you distinguish is you look for the resurrection. You see resurrection, that's the end of time, a day of judgment. You see clouds, that's the day of judgment on a nation. Now, I've got listed all the scriptures with these phrases, day of the Lord, day of judgment, or day of Christ. Sometimes it's said in the New Testament. There's lots of them. You can go through them individually. We don't have time to do that here. But I will tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you cannot tie the day of the Lord down to one day. You cannot say it automatically means the day of the Lord at the end of time. It is just impossible to do that. It is wrong to do that. Now here's some different views of what the Day of God, of God is, and I'm going to show you that they, I want you to notice the confusion about what it means. Here's something called the Christian Churches of God. I don't know who they are. Forgot. Got them off the internet. They say the Day of God means the Day of the Lord is from the first advent to the end of time. I don't know how they prove that. Here's a university professor, I think he is, at Johann Milan University of the North in South Africa. He says the day of the Lord is the judgment seat, which comes after the pre-trib tribulation and then before the pre millennial millennium. And then he says the day of God can come during the great tribulation, which is a little bit earlier. Then he says it can come during the millennium, which is a little bit after Jesus' return at, at, at the beginning of the millennium. And then he says it can refer to the great white throne judgment, which is at the end of the millennium. So you see, he's got it moving all over the place too, this dispensationalist does. And now I've got a quote from, a heretical preterist, a a time, an opinion from uh, David Green, who's a heretical preterist, who says that everything happened in eighty seventy, and he says that this day of God refers to judgment on Jerusalem in eighty seventy. I hate to quote it an heretical preterist Orthodox preterists believe the same thing, actually. That day of the Lord can easily refer to judgment on Jerusalem in eighty seventy. It doesn't not necessarily, but it could could mean that. Now, I'm going to give you, let's see, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 examples of in the scriptures where the day of the Lord does not refer to the end of the world. I want to drive this point home. Isaiah 13, 6, 9. Wait, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come into destruction from the Almighty. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Isaiah obviously there in Isaiah 13, six and 9 was referring to the day of the Lord As a day of judgment against Babylon. Isaiah 34.8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. That was a prophecy against Edom. The day of the Lord for Edom was not the end of the world. Jeremiah 46.10. For that day belongs to the Lord God of hosts. A day of vengeance so as to avenge himself on his foes. There Jeremiah is preaching that the day is coming against judgment. Against Egypt. The day of vengeance, a day of the Lord, is going against Egypt. Ezekiel 30, verses 3 and 4. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. A time of doom for the nations. A sword will come upon Egypt, and anguish will be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, they will take away her wealth. So that's judgment on Egypt. Joel 2, verses 1 and 2, and verse 31. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. The sun will become dark. The moon red as blood. You know, the overwhelming and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now Joel wrote that about 830 B.C. And there's no reference as to whether it's Assyria or Babylon that's coming. Some commentator somewhere I read said that, this, that Joel was referring to the surrounding pagan nations at that time were about to come on Israel. But at any rate, he's not talking about the end of the world. Now we know from Acts 2 that Joel was fulfilled in the first century, not the end of the world, Acts 2.20. The sun will become dark, the moon red as blood, before the overwhelming and glorious day of the Lord will come. And there in Acts 2, in Acts 2, when Peter's speaking, he's talking about the glorious day of the Lord coming. That's probably referring to A.D. 70 because that's the day of judgment. A.D. 30 was good news, Pentecost. So I suspect that Peter is looking ahead a little bit to the judgment, at least prophetically looking ahead to the judgment on Jerusalem. Amos 5.18, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Amos is probably preaching against Assyria. He doesn't mention Assyria, but that's probably who he's talking about. Here's the Cyclopedia Britannica says this, quote, he, Amos, accurately foretold the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, although he did not specify Assyria as the cause. So we'll assume he's talking about Assyria because he says the northern kingdom's going down. What purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. You're going down. Obadiah fifteen for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, and more specifically he was talking about Edom being having to face the day of the Lord, a day of judgment. Zephaniah 1.14, The Lord's day of judgment is of judging is coming soon. it is near and coming fast. The cry will be very sad on the day of the Lord, even soldiers will cry. Gleason Archer, the famous Old Testament scholar, says that this probably refers to the Scythian invasion about 630 B.C. on Assyria. Excuse me, on Israel. I'm not sure. Actually, let me back that up a minute. I'm not sure what Archer's talking about there. Scythian invasion upon whom? Probably upon the Jews. I'm I'm not familiar with what he's talking about. But anyway, the point is it's not the end of the world. Malachi 4.5, but I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and terrifying day of the Lord's judging. That was fulfilled in AD 70. How can we prove that? This is kind of fun to do. First of all, Elijah is John the Baptist, as I, as you know. Gabriel said John the Baptist was Elijah. Luke 1.17, and he, John the Baptist, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. This is the angel Gabriel announcing to, I think it was to... um. John's father, Zacharias, I think that's who this is talking to. He'll turn the uh, Gabriel continues that John the Baptist will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord of prepared people. All right, so John the Baptist is coming in the spirit of Elijah. And Jesus also said the same thing, Matthew eleven fourteen. If you're willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who is to come. All right, so we know Elijah is John the Baptist. Malachi 4, 5, I will send you Elijah the prophet, John the Baptist, before that great and terrifying day of the Lord's judging. Well, what great day of the Lord came right after John the Baptist? John the Baptist came right before what day of the Lord? 80, 70. And confirming that is what Malachi says in the next verse, after verse 5 in Malachi 4. In Malachi 4, 6, he says, and he will restore, Elijah will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse, with a ban. Now, because, I guess, that the hearts of the fathers and children of most of the Old Testament unbelieving Jews were not restored, the land was smitten with a curse, with a ban. Ban is a technical Old Testament term for complete destruction by fire, which is exactly what happened in 8070, because the unbelieving Jews' people's hearts weren't turned. Christians were, but not the unbelieving Jews. Oh, that's a little rabbit trail. The point is, as Malachi 4, 5, the great and terrible day of the Lord's coming is obviously not talking about the end of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 2-3 Do not become easily upset in your thinking or afraid if you hear that the day of the Lord has already come. The day of the Lord will not come until the turning away from God happens and the man of evil who is on his way to hell appears. Now, if the day of the Lord here in this passage, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 and 3, if that day of the Lord refers to the end of the world, how could the Thessalonians think that it had already come? The day at the end of the world? Day of the Lord? I mean, it's going to be this, it's going to be Jesus coming back and second coming. Resurrections of the dead everywhere. I mean, sound of a trumpet. Everybody's going to be called to be the Lord in the air. How in the world could the Thessalonians think the day of the Lord had already come? Because they didn't see all that. So that day of the Lord cannot refer to the end of the world. All right, so I think I've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt and to a reasonable certitude and to a moral certainty that, the day of the Lord does not have to refer to the end of the world. In fact, most of the time it does not. Now, I mentioned earlier that the day of the Lord is associated with clouds. This is judgment days of the Lord. Ezekiel 33, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, it will be a day of clouds at the time of doom for the nations. That's not referring to the end of the world. Joel 2, 1, 2, for the day of the Lord is coming, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Zephaniah 1, 14 and 15, near is the great day of the Lord, a day of clouds and thick darkness. We're going to assume that all that refers to uh, judgment upon nations back at the time of the Old Testament prophets, but now the final day of the Lord judgment day the, the the second coming of Christ day of the Lord this is what Chilton, who is an orthodox preterist, says this: each time he used the term day of the Lord, Jesus inseparably connected the last day with the resurrection. This is in paradise restored page one thirty nine I think that's interesting because of all people you know Chilton's a preterist he's bias towards taking last day is referring to the end of the world. But he says, if you see j- resurrection with the end of the world, then that means it's the resurrection at the end of the world. It's the day of the Lord at the end of the world. John six thirty-eight through 40, verse 44 and verse 54. I'll read this. And this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up. Resurrection on the last day. That's the day of the Lord. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, I myself will raise him up on the last day. Raise him up, resurrection, on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, the day of the Lord. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So clear, clearly, that last day refers to resurrection at the end of the world. John 11:24. we see this, Martha said to him, to Jesus, I know that he will rise again. He, Lazarus, her brother, will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So there you have last day it means last day at the end of the world. So last day can be end of the world or it can be day of the Lord coming in a previous time. Now, the day of the Lord can obviously refer to 87 They I already mentioned one Malachi talking about Elijah coming and Joel also talking about the day of the Lord coming because they were fulfilled right around there in the first century events. And also Luke twenty-one twenty-two, Luke says these are the days of vengeance. And that's the Olivet Discourse, which, according to a orthodox, correct orthodox preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse, that refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. And this destruction will come like a thief, Peter says in verse 10, which means suddenly, without warning, unexpectedly. And if you look at the history of the Jewish world, that's exactly what happened. The Jews were just moving along fine. The Romans had no reason to suspect any trouble from the Jews. And all of a sudden, right there, three and a half years or so before, maybe a little bit before that, the Jews started getting rambunctious. The next thing you know, you got this bodaciously awful rebellion and war that happened right in the middle of the Pax Romana. So it was like a thief, suddenly, unexpectedly. Now in this verse, Peter tells his readers that the heavens will pass away. Now, of course, literalists will love to say, "See there, that means that the heavens will disappear." This is decreation rhetoric. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to regime change when a nation or an empire went down, and here it's talking about the kingdom of the Jews going down. Typical prophetic apocalyptic language. The heavens will pass away, and Peter says these heavens will pass away with a loud noise. That's not meant to be literal. It means it's going to be, it's going to make a loud noise as in the pages of history. Let's put it that way. NIV study Bible says, disappear with a loud noise is apocalyptic language. Here's a quote from that study Bible, quote, due to the figurative nature of such writings, we must not expect complete literalism. No, we should not, should we? But recognize it as an attempt to describe the undescribable, a task as impossible as it would have been for a first century writer to describe the phenomena of our atomic age. So he's saying, don't take loud noise. The NIV study Bible says, don't take loud noise, literally, take it figuratively, and that's how I do do it. Here's another example of apocalyptic language which you can't take literally. Isaiah thirteen ten. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. Now, let me tell you, ask you something. How can the sun be dark when it rises? By definition, sunrise means it's light. This is figurative language. It's not meant to be taken literally. Are you listening, Charles Ryrie? Are you listening, dispensationalist? You have screwed up the interpretation of prophecy so bad that nobody can understand it. Now, let's go to one of my favorite words in the New Testament. Elements. Peter says in this famous verse that the elements will burn and be dissolved. The heavens will pass away is taken literally, and then the elements is taken literally to refer to the atoms of the material universe, earth, air, wind, and fire. It will burn up and everything will get burnt up. Well, let me point out to you something very interesting. The word elements is never used of the physical universe when it's used in other places in the New Testament. Never. And furthermore, the word for for element is stoikion. That word is always used, at least arguably, always used in other New Testament places to mean Old Covenant order, Old Covenant law. Now let me go through this exclusive list of scriptures in the New Testament where the word stoikion is used. I've got four places here. Galatians 4, 3, and 9. Again, the context of Paul writing to the Galatians is their terrible fascination with Jewish legalism. Paul says this, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, the legal things of the world. How is that you now turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, to the weak and worthless law, that which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Now, again, going by the context of Galatians 4, what is that all that about? You read the book of Galatians, it's all about law, 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 and so then Paul uses the term elemental stoichion. Same word is used here in Second Peter three uses the same word to describe the law. So if that's the case here in Second Peter, then we would read Second Peter this way. Second Peter three verse ten this way. The heavens will pass away with a loud noise. There's gonna be regime change for the kingdom of Israel. The legal elements will burn and be dissolved, the legal elements of the Old Testament law, the legal elements of the Old Testament Jewish rabbinic kingdom will be dissolved. You think that's weird? Well, let's let's look at some other scriptures. Colossians 2, 8 and 20. Again, the context is legalism. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the elementary principles of the world. There's that word again, Storchion. Elementary principles of the world. In other words, according to laws. If you have died with Christ through the elementary principles of the world, you've died to the law and all these man-made laws, why do you submit yourself to decrees, laws? Even the context tells you that the elementary principles of the world there is talking about law. Don't be a captive to legalism. Hebrews 5.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. There's element again, a form of stoichion. Chilton says this, David Chilton, quote, In context, the writer is clearly speaking of Old Covenant truths, especially since he connects it with the term oracles of God, an expression generally used for the provisional Old Covenant revelation. So Hebrews 5.12, let's read it again. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you that the basic legal principles of the Old Testament law has nothing to do with the physical elements of the universe. You remember the author of Hebrews is writing to Jews who would know the Old Testament and they would have trouble moving on to the new. And he says, you haven't even got the basic principles of the Old Testament law down yet. Hebrews 6.1, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. Again, the Old Testament teaching would be the Old Testament prophecies about the Christ or Old Testament types about the Christ. Leave that. Get on to the, let us press on the maturity to go on to the new covenant. Now, if you think that that's a weird interpretation, Look at, the, look at how the word is used uh, else in, this, in, in other places in the New Testament. I don't have the quote with me, unfortunately, but the famous Puritan theologian John Owen, 16th century, he was a Cambridge professor of theology, Cambridge, England, University of Cambridge. He took exactly that position, exactly. And he was a heavy hitter, folks. So this is not an off-the-wall interpretation. I believe it to be completely right. On its surface now i want to tell you another thing too there's problems with taking taking elements as physical elements burning up and that's why i prefer the the interpretation that says it's referring to the legalism of the old testament that's being burned up now the niv study bible has got two possible meanings of what element might mean it could be physical elements earth air fire water or it could be heavenly bodies so let's take heavenly bodies first and see how that works second peter 3:10. the heavenly bodies will burn up and be dissolved in the earth and the works on it will be disclosed and on that interpretation the stars will fry the earth will remain why would god fry the stars and leave the earth i don't know that seems to me to be somewhat off the wall the other view the niv study bible suggests is that the elements refers to earth air fire and water in other words the physical elements of the universe now if that's viewed, if that view is correct Let's read 2 Peter 3.10 this way. The elements, the earth, the air, the sky, the water, and all the atoms and molecules of the universe will burn up and be dissolved. Well, what's the problem with that? Because the very next phrase says, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. How are the earth and the works on it going to be disclosed when it's all burnt up? Beats me. Not only that, how's anybody going to live? If at the end of the world we, you know, we enter into the final state and we get our resurrected bodies... God's going to fry us first, burn us up? Where, where is he going to take all the people living on the earth at the end of the world? Is he going to put them out there and park them out there in space, burn the earth up, build a new, uh, create another earth, and then suck us back down from the holding holding place, the parking lot, and put us back on the earth? I don't think so. So I think that Peter is talking about the Old Testament Israel that's going down. As For example, when he says the heavens will pass away, that's typical apocalyptic prophetic use of words when nations are destroyed, decreation rhetoric. All right, let me look once more about the problem of what happens if the elements will be burned up. It's taken literally and it's talking about the earth and the sky and the stars and so forth. I've already mentioned the problem. What happens to all the people on the earth? Will they burn up? If they burn up, how can they be judged? But there's another problem too. The earth is supposed to be renewed and released from its curse at the very end. Romans 8:21 the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and the glorious freedom of God's children. Really? But it's burnt up. How is that being set free from the bondage to decay? Well, John Gill sees the problem, and this is what he says. The earth also will be purged and purified from everything that is noxious, hurtful, unnecessary, and disagreeable, though the matter and substance of it will continue. So he's saying, well, the earth's not going to completely disappear. It's just going to get purified with fire. I don't know. That's not what the verse says. It says burn up. It doesn't say purified. It says burn up. Let me read that for you again. Second Peter 3.10, the elements will burn and be dissolved. Well, I mean, I guess you could say the earth is, but how are how you going to purify the earth with fire? Get rid of all the sin and all the, the earthquakes and the fire ants and the poisonous snakes and spiders and all that stuff, you know, with rats with fire? I don't think so. So let me give you what John Gill says. Now, this might not necessarily be his opinion. In fact, I don't think it is his opinion, but listen to what he says, quote, Some are of opinion that these words refer to the destruction of Jerusalem, and that's my opinion. And so the passing away of the heavens may design the removal of their church state and ordinances, in other words, the removal of the Jewish polity, and the melting of the elements, the ceasing of the ceremonial law called the elements of the world. It's in Galatians 4.3, the verse I just quoted you. And the burning of the earth the destruction of the land of Judea expressed in such a manner in Deuteronomy twenty-nine thirty-three, and particularly of the temple and the curious works in that which will all burn up and destroyed by fire. My opinion exactly. So you see, this is not an off-the-wall opinion I'm giving you. As And John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, said that was his opinion. I mentioned him earlier. I've got his quotation in another part of my note somewhere. Unfortunately, I didn't copy it here. But he was of the same opinion that the burning up was the elements of the Jewish legalistic system, the Jew- Jewish system of law. As John Gill puts it, the Jewish polity. I like to call it the rabbinic apostate kingdom. Second Peter 3.11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, all the Old Testament Jewish kingdom is going to be destroyed in this way, i.e. by being burnt up. It is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. Disaster and judgment tends to have a sobering effect, as you can imagine. And so Peter is saying, hey, it's coming, guys. So you should be conducting yourselves with holiness and godliness. This destruction is coming to deliver you, not to destroy you. So how about keep your eye on the prize? Now, of course, the futurists say this is the the world is going to be burnt up. So that should, in, should inspire us to holy conduct and godliness. I don't know. I've never been all that inspired to holy conduct and godliness, thinking about the future of the world being burnt up. Maybe you have. It doesn't fit my experience. I think it makes more sense that these Jews facing this judgment coming in just a few short years, that might tend to make them be holy in conduct and godliness. We go to verse twelve, Second Peter 3. As you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God, the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will melt with the heat. Well, the elements melting with the heat, I've already told you what that is. That's the legalistic system that's going down. I've already mentioned that. As you wait for, NIV has looked forward to and earnestly desired. Now, here there's a manuscript variance, which is interesting. The NIV in its text says, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Now, I remember in my early days in the high school and college, I was told that the more we evangelize, we can make the day of God get here quicker. And of course, back then, I took the day of God to be the end of the world. And I'm thinking, well, how can we adjust god's timetable by what we do i thought that was a big theological problem and i'm not the only one that thinks that john gill says quote the day is fixed for the coming of christ nor can it be altered as his coming will not be longer it cannot be sooner which was exactly my opinion so i so this was just a big mystery to me how in the world can we affect when jesus comes back how can we speed its coming how can we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming just by being more anxious for it to get here? Just like what we wish we get. We want it to come. We earnestly wait for it to come and that speeds it up. Well, that don't make any sense to me. Well, then now I discover that there's a manuscript variance here. Then I note has or as you wait eagerly for the day of God to come, no mention of speeding up the day of God. Homer Christian Study Bible, no mention of the speeding up of the day of God. That solves the problem, folks. Just take the manuscript variant that leaves out that speed up, because I can't make any sense out of that, speeding up the day of God just because we want it to to get here faster. Here's the famous commentator, Alford, who says the Greek may, and I'm emphasizing may, the Greek may mean hastening the day of God, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. So I'm not going to make it mean that, because then i got all kinds of philosophical, theological problems of how we can speed up the day of God getting here. The day of God, of course, is the same thing as the day of the Lord. Now, it's an interesting point here about fire. The the world will be burned up by fire. The heavens will be on fire. Again, this is talking about the heavens and the earth, the present heavens and earth. This is the rabbinic way of saying the Old Testament Israel will be on fire and dissolve. They're going to get wiped out. It's interesting that all of the pagan nations back then among the heathens had myths and opinions that the earth should be burned up by fire, as Adam Clark says. Ovid believed that. The Stoics believed it. The Epicureans believed it. And this is just my speculation, my unlearned speculation. I wonder if that's why so many Christians take this as literal fire burning up the earth. It's because the idea is in our Western culture everywhere. I don't know. But when the heavens are burnt up and dissolved, dissolved, that's one more example of decreational rhetoric, like stars falling on the earth like figs from a tree, the moon turning to blood, the sun being dark when it rises, the sun turning to blood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We go now to th- verse thirteen. We'll finish up this section, Second Peter three, thirteen. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Now, new heavens and new earth is taken two different ways. Futurists often well people split actually on this. Futurists make it refer to maybe the millennium, maybe the final state. Oh, they put it all over the place. Even some preterists do that, and some preterists say it refers to the new covenant. Let me give you an example of various positions on this. I'm going to break out the various millennial positions because they have different views in general. Premills split. They say that new heavens and new earth can either mean the millennium or they say it might mean the eternal state after the millennium. Most premills say that this 2 Peter 3 passage, the burning up of the elements and all refer, the new heavens and new earth, refers to the eternal state. And most see Revelation 21, one the New Heavens and the New Earth coming. This is the New Jerusalem passage. The New Heavens and the New Earth refers to the eternal state because it follows the millennium in verse 20, Revelation, excuse me, chapter 20. And so then the New Heavens and the New Earth that comes after that in chapter 21 is said to refer to the eternal state. And you will hear that over and over and over again. That's the majority opinion because so many people are pre-mills. So they mainly say eternal state. Some say the millennium. Now, Amil's, most of them see the uh, new heavens and the new earth, which is mentioned in Isaiah, by the way, Isaiah 66. We'll look at that in a minute. But they say the new heavens and the new earth there in Isaiah 66 is referred to the eternal state. In fact, most Amil's most say that Second Peter is the eternal state, the one we're looking at here. The earth is burned up with fire. And most see Revelation 21.1, the new heavens and the new earth is the eternal state. Mills, on the other hand, most of them see isaiah sixty six where the term new heavens and New earth is first introduced in the Old Testament. They see that as referring to a new spiritual creation, what i what I call the New Covenant. Now, some post mills look at second Peter, the one here, and split some say it's the eternal state, like Kenneth Gentry, who's not only a post mill he's also an orthodox preterist, and then David Chilton, who was a Orthodox Protestant, also a post mill. He says it's the new covenant. Well, I take Chilton's view over Gentry's view. I think it refers to the new covenant. Now, that's the view of, of so, so most post take Isaiah 66 is referring to the new covenant. They split on Second Peter. Some of them say this passage here refers to the eternal state. I think they're wrong. I think it refers to the new covenant too, and revelation 21 most post mills say that's the new covenant so except for a few that split out on second peter three most everybody takes the new heavens and the new earth most all post mills take the new heaven and the new earth as the new covenant and I, since i'm post mill that's naturally the way i take it now how can i defend that well first of all let me mention i really should have done this first the three places in scripture where new heavens and new earth are mentioned and what i did is i broke out the three p- p- places in scripture and compared the pre-mill, and post-mill position on, on these three places. Isaiah 65:17 and 66:22. Isaiah 65:17 says this: For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66:22. For just as the new heavens and new earth which I make will endure. And now, verse here in 2 Peter 3:13. We wait for the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21:21. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And as I said, most everybody, the pre-mills always t- take all of these. Uh, pre-mills take the Isaiah passages is either the millennium or the eternal state. In 2 Peter 3:13 or Revelation 21, 1, they take as the eternal state. The all-mills take all three as the eternal states. You see, most people take the eternal state, all-mills and pre-mills. And it's only us oddball mills that take it as the New Covenant. Well, let me give you the arguments for saying that these three passages refer to the New Covenant. Let's start with Isaiah 65, 17 and 66, 22. If Isaiah is referring to the eternal state, why is there death, sad thoughts, labor, physical deterioration, and people having kids in the eternal state? Because we know that the eternal state has none of those things. For example, death, Isaiah 65, 20, the youth will die at the age of 100, die really in the in the final state, their sad thoughts isaiah 65, 20, one who does not teach the age of a hundred will be thought accursed. How can you think somebody's accursed in heaven in the in the final state labor sixty five twenty one they will build they will plant now that might be a little bit questionable because some people think labor is good. I have a hard time believing that, but I mean you know it's I can imagine working without having Sin would be would be fun. You'd be constructing things. So I'll I'll give you that one. But how about physical deterioration? Isaiah sixty-five twenty-two. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. Oh, really? Things are gonna wear out in the final state. And having children in the final state. Isaiah sixty-five twenty-three. For they will not bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord, and their descendants with them. They will not bear children. They will not bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord. In other words, they will bear children, but not for calamity, because they're the offspring of the Lord. So they're having children in the new heavens and the new earth. So there, right there, you've got a big problem with Isaiah. Now, how about Revelation 21.1, which is so often associated with the eternal state? Well, in Re- Revelation 21.21, the new heavens and the new earth is associated with the new Jerusalem, which is clearly the new covenant. Again, that's controversial. But from my Orthodox prayer's point of view, it's the new covenant. Why? Because in verse 2, it says, the New Jerusalem is the Bride of Christ. The Bride of Christ. That's the church, folks. Revelation 21:3. The tabernacle of God is among men. That's the church, folks. The New Covenant. Isaiah 26. Water of life is coming from this New Jerusalem. The water of life. Jesus said, I will give you rivers of water flowing from your belly. That's the church. The New Covenant. And then in verse 14. This New Jerusalem has 12 foundation stones, 12 apostles. What is that? That's the church. So how is the new heavens and the new earth always associated with the final state when it's clearly talking about the new covenant, in my humble opinion? Now let's go to our verse here, verse 2 Peter 3, verse 13, and see how new heavens and new earth refer to the church, the church's new covenant, Jesus' new covenant in the church, not the end of the world, not the final state. All right, and some of this is going to be repetitive from what I've already said, but I'm just going to run through it again. First, first argument, that it's the new covenant. New heavens and the new earth is the new covenant. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. In other words, Old Testament rabbinic apostate, Israel's being reserved for fire. But Isaiah and Revelation are metaphorically referring to the new covenant. So it's logical that Peter is referring to the same event. He says in verse 13, According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. According to what promise? Isaiah 65 and 66. That's what Peter has to be referring to. And we've already showed that in Isaiah 65 and 66, that can't refer to the final state because there's death, there's labor, there's people having children, then there's physical deterioration of things. So that phrase, that phrase that Peter uses, according to his promise. What promise? The promise of Isaiah, which cannot refer to the final state. So he, Peter's not referring to the final state either. Third argument in favor of the new heavens and the new earth referring to the new covenant. If, a, if there's a conflagration at the end of the world when the new heavens and new earth are established from that burning up of the world, what happens to Christians? I've already mentioned this argument before, but let me give you a quote here from Celsus, an anti-Christian philosopher of the second century, a famous guy. Here's what he says, quote, it is silly to suppose that when God, like a cook, brings the fire, the rest of mankind will be roasted and only the Christians will remain. Really, it is the hope of worms. It is only the simpletons, the ignoble, the senseless. He's not talking about futurist here. He's talking about all of us. The most uneducated and common men, whoever is a sinner or Godforsaken God-forsaken fool. Well, that's a pretty hard argument to answer, because if I was a Christian facing celsus, I wouldn't want to fight him. Fourth argument, the new heavens and new earth refers to the new covenant in our present church age. Last days, as we've gone through and showed you, last days usually does not mean the end of the world, unless the resurrection is accompanied with well, that's with the day of the Lord. unless. uh But last days, as we've seen by many places, such as Hebrews 1-2, refers to the new covenant. It refers to the end of the Old Testament polity, the Old Testament order, the apostate rabbinic Jews. It's the end of them, which means it's the establishment of the new covenant. So new heavens and new earth would be after the last days. And then the fifth argument, collapsing universe, decreation language is not literal in many other places i've already mentioned that many many times and so here we have all that that language here the heavens will be burned up earth will be burned up with fire the earth will be dissolved that's talking about israel going down regime change i've already mentioned the day of the lord how it refers oftentimes to other times besides the end of the world and in fact in matthew 24 the term i didn't mention this the day of the lord Matthew twenty four forty two and forty three refers to eighty seventy. If you if you take an orthodox preterist view of Matthew twenty four, which I do, the elements will melt with intense heat. I've already described how elements refer to legal principles. And last of all, Peter uses the day of the Lord as an exhortation to godliness for first century Christians. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The nearness of the conflagration was the incentive to godliness. As I said earlier, 2,000 years later, that's going to make me want to be holy. I don't think so. Now, I could give you some arguments that the burning up of the elements is for in favor of a new physical universe. I will because they're gentry and I respect him, but I think he's wrong here. His first argument is that the mockers who were scoffing because of a long time before Jesus' coming, and if the coming were eighty, seventy, Peter would not have suggested that the wait might be thousands of years. Well, I've already talked about that. The day of the Lord is 1,000 years. So, Gentry's not impressed with my argument, I guess. Gentry says that the unraveling and conflagration of heavens and earth are expressly tied to the material creation. Now, this is a strong argument. 2 Peter 3 4, Peter mentions from the beginning of creation. 2 Peter 3 5, he says the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed by water and out of water. Verse 7, the heavens and earth which now exist. And there he says, well, that's obviously talking about material things, so why wouldn't material things be talked about? In verse 10 when the elements are burnt up and in verse 11 when in verse 13 when the new heavens and the new earth is established gentry says that the delay that peter is talking about is so that is because that god is not willing that any perish but that all should come to repentance gentry said there's no way for the disciples to evangelize the whole world before 8070. well the simple answer to that is he's not willing for any of the jewish christians who live in jerusalem to perish Little audience relevance there, you know. That's not—he's not talking about the whole world. He's talking about the people he's writing to. He doesn't want any of you guys to perish. Uh, fourth argument that Gentry uses to sh- try to show a futurist view of Second Peter three. The theme of Second Peter is perseverance in anticipation of the historical long run. And so the long run, of course, would mean the new heavens and new earth are established at the end of the world. Verse six in chapter one, he says, in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness, well, my answer to that is they had to persevere to get through the Jewish persecutions that were going on in 8060. Remember in in the 60s, remember the author of Hebrews says they're stealing your money, they're putting you in jail, abusing you, ridiculing you. So the perseverance could be in the short run too, not just the long run to the end of the world. Perseverance until the new heavens and the new earth and new covenant is really established by the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070. And then the fifth argument that that Gentry uses to show that Second Peter three is future and not eighty seventy, he says that collapsing universe rhetoric that is used in this passage is stronger than normal. Melt, fervent heat, and burn up. Well, that's that's a weak one. So as much as I admire Gentry, I think he gives too much away here on Second Peter three. He needs to take a my humble opinion, a preterist view of Second Peter three. As well as he takes a perverse view of all of that discourse in the book of Revelation, but that's just my opinion. So let's summarize all this: the new heavens and the new earth could be the new covenant—that's the proper view, in my humble opinion—or it could be a recreated, a renewed physical earth at the end of time. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown affirms that. But of all the people who say that the new heavens and the new earth are at the end of time, I've yet to find anyone who affirms, who, who who says that, to explain why elements always means law—that is the killer argument. It doesn't mean physical elements. Everywhere else is used in the scripture, and it means law. And that's perfect, a perfect way to describe the destruction of the legalistic order of the Jews. I think John Owen, that great Puritan theologian, had it right on the money. But at any rate, this new heavens and new earth, which I say is the new covenant, where we're living right now in the church age, where righteousness will dwell. John Doe will have a residence there, and Susie Q will have a residence there, and righteousness will live there too. Righteousness will dwell in the church, folks, in the New Covenant. Look around. The people I know that are righteous are Christians. The people I know that aren't righteous are worldlings. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with this difficult passage, 2 Peter 3, verses 1-13. through 13. In our next audio, we will take up 2 Peter 3, starting with verse 14. We will go through verse 18, the end of the chapter, and I'm going to call that section section Exhorting for Stability. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.